This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. But what I was really passionate about was understanding how this planet of ours works. And so my strongest, deepest fundamental motive for throwing my hat in the ring at the 1977-78 astronaut selection was the long shot chance that I might just get selected and get to see the Earth from orbit with my own eyes. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. People have all sorts of reasons for applying to be an astronaut. My brother had been crazy about airplanes and flying since as long as I can remember. I remember him hanging off the chain link fence of an airport, gazing at the planes beyond when he was probably maybe four years old. Other folks are drawn to engineering and I think probably imagine designing and operating these amazing complex machines. And some have wanted to be an astronaut from as long as they can remember. That was the goal they set for themselves at a very young age. I wasn't any of those people. I'd been drawn to the adventurousness of the lives of the early astronauts, that's for sure. It had really helped define my course through life. But what I was really passionate about was understanding how this planet of ours works. And so my strongest, deepest fundamental motive for throwing my hat in the ring at the 1977-78 astronaut selection was the long shot chance that I might just get selected and get to see the Earth from orbit with my own eyes. I'm pretty sure I had already looked at and poured over every single photo every single astronaut had ever taken of Earth, and they absolutely mesmerized me. And I was now in graduate school with an undergraduate degree in geology and working on a PhD to make myself a deep sea geologist, someone who studies the volcanic processes that make the seafloor of our planet develop and work the plate tectonics that shape our continents and our ocean basins. So that was the really big draw for me. The odds were long. Probably thousands of people would apply. They'd probably only take a couple. But if I somehow beat those odds, I could have that experience. And you know, the odds are only zero if you sit on the sideline and don't try. So I threw my hat in the ring, and of course, things worked out in my favor. But I offer that backdrop because I think it helps you understand why some of my views of Earth are my most cherished and vivid memories from my time in orbit. And two moments on my first flight really stand out in particular. I can see them both to this day in my mind's eye. The first one happened on our spacewalk. Dave Leesman and I are out in the cargo bay. It turns out we'll be out there for about three and a half hours. 
mainly with our heads down, our faces close up to the space shuttle itself or right by the tools that we're using for this engineering test that we were doing. The main job that took us outside was to prove that NASA had built the kind of tools that would let us refuel satellites on orbit. That's something that's still not done to this day, but it could be a key aspect of extending the life of an expensive satellite in space. Well, we had that part of the job done, and now I was going to go off to help repair one of our antennas. One of our antennas had suffered a short circuit that made it spin wildly around its axis. And my job, now that the refueling was complete, was to come all the way to the front of the shuttle cargo bay, cross over to the opposite side, and hold the antenna in position for landing while my crewmates drove the latches that would lock it firmly into place. The cool part of this was it gave me a chance to improvise a path from the left-hand or port side of the cargo bay to the starboard side. And we had decided we were going to use that transition, that movement across the cargo bay to film a scene for an upcoming IMAX movie. Both Dave and I would be up near the front of the cargo bay, right in the scene, and it would be really dramatic to have me right in the middle of the cargo bay, dangling around with the earth beneath me. So off I went, came along the rail forward and started working across this set of instruments that connected from one side to the other. And about halfway across on my little traverse, John McBride, our number two on the flight and the guru on the IMAX camera, he called out from inside the cabin and told me to hold up there for a moment. He didn't quite have the scene set and the camera rigged the way he wanted. And he really wanted this shot to have me right smack dab in the middle of the cargo bay. Well, it turns out in our entire three and a half hour long spacewalk, that little pause that John ordered me to take was about the only real moment I had to take my eyes and my mind off of the work that I was doing, the care with which I was placing my hands and moving around, and just take in where I was. And so imagine now that you're looking out the back windows of the space shuttle. What you would see is this set of instruments that look like they're sitting on a shelf, a horizontal shelf. And you would see me on that shelf, holding onto it with my hands, with my feet and the heavy boots of the spacesuit pointed up along the space shuttle tail, up away from all the delicate instruments on that shelf. You would think I was doing a handstand on that shelf. And that's how I felt right up until the moment John told me to stop and hang out for a bit. Then I took my eyes off my hands, sort of lowered my gaze towards my feet to take in the rest of the scene around me. And the wonders of zero gravity, as soon as I move my eyes off my hands and look level and then down a little bit, I feel like I'm not doing a handstand any longer. Now I feel like I'm hanging from a tree limb. I can remember moments in my backyard in California, hanging from a tree limb and looking down between my toes to judge how far off the ground was I and, and was it safe to drop into that nice green grass below. Only now I'm looking down between my toes, my big white bulky toes of my spacesuit boots. And I'm seeing the entire northern coast of Venezuela sliding right between my boots. And in the very few minutes that John had me hold on there, all of the coast of northern South America slid right between my feet. It was a wondrous sight. And that magical mental transformation from, look, mom, I'm doing a handstand, to, oh, wow, I'm hanging from a tree limb 200 miles above the earth, 
was really a fascinating and wonderful sensation. A day or so later, on that same flight, I had the other really remarkable experience. And this one, even more than looking, looking down at Venezuela, really brought home to me the wonder and magic of where I was. I had a couple of free moments, and I'm just up at the window watching the Earth go by below. And the space shuttle is about to cross from being on the daylight side of the Earth to being on the, the nighttime side of the Earth. We orbited the Earth every 90 minutes. So instead of a sunrise in the morning and a sunset in the evening, we got 16 sunrises and 16 sunsets every 24-hour period. Crossing from day to night and night to day was something that happened every 45 minutes. We got to watch a lot of it. But this particular time, I'm at the window just watching that daylight to dark line. It's called the Terminator, watching it go by. And we're so high above the Earth that our space shuttle is still bathed in bright, glorious sunlight. And I looked back down at the Earth again, and now I was seeing city lights on the ground below me. And I had this flash of insight that right down there, in one of those little patches of light, right now, there could be a little girl looking up at the sky and pointing upward and saying to her mother, look, mommy, it's a satellite. And she's pointing at me. And I remember being that little girl looking up and watching for satellites and pointing them out to my parents and being really excited about it. And to now be that satellite and to hope there was some other little girl, like the little girl I once had been, who was looking up at the night sky, at the stars above her head, and seeing one of them moving by and realizing it was a satellite. And maybe, just possibly, maybe knowing it was the space shuttle and there was someone aboard that ship who used to be just like her. And she could go that far or further in her own life as well. Such are the marvels of spaceflight. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.